We turn this evening to the Gospel according to Mark, the first chapter, Mark 1. And we will read together tonight the first 22 verses of the chapter. Mark 1, 1 through 22. The text for the sermon is verses 12 and 13. Let's read God's Word together. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, and make his paths straight. John did baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea, and they of Jerusalem, and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle of a skin about his loins. And he did eat locusts and wild honey and preached, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall be baptized with, baptize you with the Holy Ghost." And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beasts. And the angels ministered unto him. Now after that, John was put in prison. Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye, and believe the gospel. Now as he walked by the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And John, Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little further thence, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who also were in the ship mending their nets. And straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. And they went into Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath day he entered into the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. We'll read the chapter that far. May God bless the reading of His Holy Word to us. I'll read the text for the sermon one more time. Verses 12 and 13 of Mark 1. And immediately the Spirit 
driveth him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered unto him. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the text that we have before us this evening, though it's made up of only a couple of verses, is both profound and practical. It's profound. And it's profound because I think when we look at the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness, there's a certain question that always comes up in our minds when we consider them. And that question is, how could it be? that Jesus was actually tempted. We know who Jesus is and what we say about what is true of Jesus. He is the Son of God come into the flesh. He is the sinless One, qualifying Him to be the Mediator and the Savior. How could it be that that One who was sinless and could not sin actually could be tempted of the devil as we have it described here in this passage and in other passages. There's a certain profound aspect that comes through in this passage and its parallel accounts. But at the same time, the passage is also incredibly practical. And it's practical because it speaks to the reality of temptation. Not from the perspective first and foremost of you and me, but that of Jesus. But what it means that Jesus was tempted, as we will see in the sermon, has everything to say about what it means that you and I are tempted. Tempted to the end that sometimes we fall. But tempted to the end also that sometimes by the power of God we resist. Both of which comes back directly to the truth of our passage that Jesus was tempted of the devil and did not fall, but conquered that devil, foreshadowing what would come at the end of His earthly ministry when the final victory was accomplished on the cross of Calvary and in the resurrection from the dead. God willing, tonight we will see how this truth about Jesus speaks to what it means as you go forward and I go forward in our lives in the midst of a world that tempts us. The devil that seeks to still destroy us in our sinful nature that is constantly pulled towards those temptations of the devil and the world. It's profound and it's also practical. We're going to consider tonight the temptations of Jesus as it is presented here in the Gospel according to Mark. Uh, this sermon tonight is the second sermon at the very beginning of a series that I've just begun preaching through this Gospel according to Mark. And so we know, of course, that there are parallel passages to this one. Parallel passages that explain in more detail three particular temptations that Jesus experienced. You children are familiar with those particular temptations. Stones into bread, 
jumping off the pinnacle of the temple, bowing down to Satan as he sees the kingdoms of the world. We're going to take as our lead this text. Mark presents the temptations of Jesus in a certain way. It's very brief. It's only two verses. And therefore, we're going to look tonight at the temptations of Jesus more generally. More generally from the point of view of what it meant for Jesus to be tempted and then what it means for us. And not spend so much time looking specifically, as the other accounts do, at the particular temptations that Jesus experienced. With that in mind, let's consider this text under the theme, The Temptation of Jesus in the Wilderness. And we'll notice in the first place, driven by the Spirit. In the second place, tempted by the devil. And then thirdly, and it will be very brief, ministered unto by the angels. In this first point of the sermon, as we look at this idea that He was driven into the wilderness, I'd like to answer four questions. We're going to answer these questions in order and they're all going to be leading to the climax, which is the fourth of the questions. When? Number one. How? Number two. Where? Number three. And the fourth and most important, why? In the fourth place. Let's start with the first one. When? Our text, verses 12 and 13 of Mark chapter 1, comes immediately after the opening section of the Gospel according to Mark. In the opening section, we have the familiar history of John the Baptist as the great forerunner of Jesus Christ. And at the end of that opening section, we read about the baptism of Jesus by John. Jesus comes and He meets John in that area by the Jordan River. And he tells John, John, you need to baptize me. And John immediately, he resists that, understandingly. But Jesus makes very clear, no, John, I must be baptized. And so in that Jordan River, John the Baptist baptizes the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a scene that must have been. And what a sound that must have been. There's Jesus in the Jordan River and He and he rises up out of that water and the heavens open and the Spirit of God in the form of a dove comes upon the Lord Jesus and then the booming voice of the Father, this is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What a sight and what a sound that must have been with regard to the baptism of Jesus Christ. And that was a most significant event in the life of Jesus. That Spirit coming upon the Lord Jesus, equipping Him and ordaining Him into the official office of the mediator of God's covenant so that at this time in particular, it marked the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. The ministry that started here and that would end at Calvary. And Jesus, now equipped with the Spirit, hearing the confirming voice of His Father, the Beloved Son that God sent to accomplish the redemption of His church, now begins His earthly ministry. And the first thing, the first thing 
that takes place is our text. And what a contrast that's on display there. You have this glorious event of His, of his baptism with the booming voice of His Father expressing His approval of Him as the one sent by God to do that work. And then immediately, and this is the contrast, He's in the, the barren desert about to do battle 40 days and 40 nights against the prince of the kingdom of darkness, Satan himself. But this is how that work of Jesus in His ministry had to begin. Notice that word immediately. Immediately. That's a theme in the book of Mark. Over 45 times that word immediately is used. Mark presents the life of Jesus in a certain way. He's writing to the Romans. And the Romans needed to know that there's a king A king who will conquer for a kingdom. And that kingdom was not of this earth. And that king was not a Caesar. But the king is Jesus. And Mark presents Jesus as the king in action. From one thing to the next thing to the next thing as He does the work of God to accomplish the victory for the kingdom of God. Immediately, as Mark presents it, This is the first thing that Jesus has to do in the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Leads us to question number two. The question, how? How in particular was He brought to that place in order to do this work? And the answer to that, as it's reflected in the title of the first point, is that He was driven there By the Spirit. Immediately the Spirit driveth Him into the wilderness. That's very striking language. Because that's a very powerful word that is written here. To give examples of that, that word drive is the exact same word that's found later in this same chapter in verse 39 which says this, and He preached in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and cast out devils. That word cast out is the same word as drive in our passage. And it indicates a certain authority and power. It's the same word that's used later in the Gospel accounts to refer to what Jesus did in the temple when there were buyers and sellers corrupting the house of prayer. With authority and power, Jesus walks into that temple and we read there that He drives out those buyers and those sellers in His zeal for God and His zeal for the worship of God in the house of prayer. That same strength of word is used here to describe what the Spirit does in driving the Lord Jesus to this particular place to do this work. To be tempted of the devil. Now don't misunderstand that. It doesn't mean that Jesus went there against His will. The will of God is one. The will of Jesus is in harmony with that will of God. He was not driven there against His will so that Begrudgingly, He takes up this work. No, as is the case in all of the mediatorial and redemptive work of Jesus, this is what He does willingly and out of love for His people. 
It also doesn't mean then that he was lured there by the devil. So that this is a battle that's taking place on the devil's terms. No, not at all. He was driven there, not lured there. And he was driven there because he had to go there. And he had to accomplish this work. And that's the point of emphasis in this language of driving. He was driven there, and that being driven there emphasizes the divine necessity of what takes place in that wilderness in being tempted of the devil. He was driven there because he had to go there. He had to go there as part of what he came to do on behalf of God and for the redemption of His people. And hold that thought because that's the very thing that we're going to come back to in a little bit. But let's answer the third question before we do that. And the third question is where? And the answer to that, of course, is in the wilderness. We don't know precisely where in the wilderness. Jesus was baptized in the Jordan, moving uh, inland towards the Mediterranean Sea. Somewhere in the Judean desert is where these events took place. Interestingly, Mark includes a detail that the other Gospel writers do not include about where he was tempted. And that's what we read in the middle of verse 13 when it says, and was with the wild beasts. The purpose of Mark including that detail is to give us a graphic image of the type of place that he was in. The desert is a scary, gloomy, barren place. And this was true. This isn't made up. This was true with wild beasts, lions, hyenas. Legitimately dangerous to be in alone. But that outward reality of what the desert was points to what the true war that was taking place during those 40 days was. And it wasn't against those wild beasts that were in that desert, but against the One who is the epitome of evil, the devil himself. Mark is painting a picture of what is going on here. And what is going on here is a dangerous spiritual warfare taking place in an outwardly dangerous, gloomy place. And that brings us to the fourth question and the most important question. And that is why the Spirit of God drove Jesus into this place in particular to be tempted of the devil. And to answer that question, beloved, generally, we can say this. He went there for you. He went there for me. And He went there for all of His people. In order to do what no man can do, what you cannot do, and what I cannot do. And that is conquer and defeat the prince of darkness, the devil himself. And in conquering and defeating him here, right at the beginning, he starts on a path 
that will end in the final conquering and defeating of the entire kingdom of darkness of which the devil is head. When he lays down his life on Calvary's cross and victoriously arises from the dead. This two-verse explanation of Jesus being tempted in the desert is part of the Gospel. The opening line of the book of Mark is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The entire book is about the good news. And the good news is Jesus. And the good news is what Jesus does for His people. And this right here is an integral part of that Gospel. For you, for me, He conquers the evil one, the devil himself. Now let's elaborate on that. That's the general answer to the question why, but let's put some more substance to that. And think about what is going on here in terms of the full scope of history up until this point. There is a striking similarity between the beginning of the Gospel according to Mark and the beginning of the entire Bible. This is the disadvantage of teaching or preaching a series, a sermon that's part of a series so that I come with this sermon and you having not heard the first sermon. But the first sermon on the Gospel of, according to Mark in that opening section that we read uh, emphasized a similarity between the way in which Mark's account begins and the way in which the Bible begins. Look at how Mark begins his Gospel account. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And there is in that a striking similarity to Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning. You have two beginnings. There is the the beginning of Genesis 1 verse 1. the, The great beginning when God by the power of His Word makes all things. But that beginning was a beginning so that one day there would be this beginning. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That time in history when God would break forth into this world in the person of His Son who became man. And that through that One who is Jesus, there would be victory, hope, and salvation for the Kingdom of God. The first beginning had as its purpose so that Mark could write the beginning in the fullness of time when Jesus became a man. Striking similarity between Mark 1 verse 1 and Genesis 1 verse 1. But the similarities continue. Because after God created all things, He made Adam and Eve. And He placed them into a garden, paradise, in which for a time they enjoyed wonderful life with God. But God said to them, this is My command to you. 
As you live your life in this garden with me, my command to you is that you may eat all the trees that I have made for you, but do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you eat, this is the punishment, namely death. Enter Satan. So that immediately after God made man, Satan enters into that beautiful paradise in the form of a serpent to tempt our first parents, Adam and Eve. And as we reflect upon what we all know so well, we know the outcome of that temptation. We know what happened with regard to the first Adam. The first Adam who was our first father and our representative head. Satan comes to Eve and through Eve gets to Adam. And Adam, succumbing to the temptation, eats that forbidden fruit, seeking to enthrone himself and dethrone God so that he falls. It's not just a fall as we refer to it, but it is the fall. The fall in the face of the temptation. And the fall in the face of the temptation that cast this entire humanity whom He represented into death, misery, sin, and suffering. That's the first beginning and the first temptation. And then you go to Mark 1 verse 1. In the face of that, the beginning of the Gospel of the Son of God who is Jesus Christ. And after that beginning, the coming of Jesus, now with the Spirit upon Him as He begins His earthly ministry, here's the parallel. What's the first thing that happened? Another temptation by the exact same one, the devil himself. And so the question is, Will the second Adam fall? The first Adam who represented us fell, plunging the entire human race into humanity. This Jesus comes as the Son of God and He is the second Adam. And the question is, in the face of this temptation, will that second Adam fall? So that all hope is lost. And there is no redemption. And there is no victory for the kingdom of God, but victory for the kingdom of Satan. That's what's going on here. Will the second Adam fall like the first one did? And we know, of course. We know, of course, because this is Gospel. This is good news. And the good news is that this Lord Jesus did not fall. He did not fall as second Adam. As representative as the one who did not fall on behalf of all those whom He represented, His body, His bride, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why He had to go there. He had to go do what Adam could not do. And what we would never have the power to do as well. Resist that temptation. Conquer the devil. 
Not only in that moment, but in that moment so that the ultimate victory would come when He delivers His people from all sin, death, and misery by His resurrection from the dead and His death on the cross of Calvary. To fill that out just a little bit more with another historical illusion, as you think about 40 days in a wilderness. I believe the main point is to bring us back to the beginning with Adam in the first uh, temptation by the devil. But there's also uh, possibly this, as you reflect upon this in light of the entire history of God's Word. 40 days in a wilderness makes you think of the 40 years in the wilderness that Israel was after the redemption from Egypt. Israel, which as Exodus 4 refers to as God's Son. God's Son. And what characterized so much of the time in that wilderness for God's Son who was Israel? What characterized it was temptation. Falling. And consequences of that fall as well. The very reason that they were there for 40 years years until God brought them in. They failed. That's the point. They failed. They couldn't do it. And just like Adam, Israel, God's son who sinned and failed, leads us. It all leads us to the same thing. We need one who won't. Who can't. In whom there is victory. And that one is Jesus. And that's what's on display here as He's driven into that wilderness and tempted of the devil. And we'll have more to say about that a bit in the second point as we explain the temptation itself. So let's lead into that now in the second point of the sermon and consider the temptation of Satan itself. Now there is some disagreement as to whether or not it was true that Jesus was tempted for the entirety of those 40 days by the devil. Or, was it the case that He was there for 40 days and the temptation was just limited to the very end with the three temptations that we are familiar with in the other Gospel accounts? In the end, the answer to that question doesn't change the substance of the meaning of the text. The meaning of the text is that he did battle against the devil. He was engaged in the most intense spiritual warfare with the devil. Whether that was uh, all 40 days, which I believe our text implies with how it's written, in the wilderness 40 days, and referring to being there for 40 days, tempted of Satan, or whether it was the, the final onslaught at the end in those three temptations. Either way, the main point is clear. Intense spiritual warfare in the form of being tempted by Satan those 40 days. It is hard, beloved, to get a sense of the intensity of what is going on here. 
we, we obviously understand the fact of it. We can't deny the fact of it. The fact that he was tempted. There's a certain profound nature to it, as I said in the introduction, but we can't deny it. It's very clear here, Hebrews 4.15, and the commentary on this passage that we find in that chapter. But it is admittedly difficult in words to get a sense of how intense these 40 days must have been for Jesus. We need to try to do that. We do that in part by understanding in the first place that the devil is real. This devil that was tempting Jesus is real. There's always a temptation on our part to, on the one hand, either overemphasize the power of the devil, or on the other hand, underemphasize or minimize who he is and what he does. This is a danger over here that we overemphasize it. And we mustn't do that. We need to always remember that though the devil is real and all of his his uh his fallen angels, they're not omnipotent, they're not omniscient, they're not God. Their power is limited. But on the other hand, we must not minimize the reality and the power and the work that the devil does and all of his host does with them on behalf of the kingdom of darkness. The devil is real. He was real in that beginning temptation in the form of the serpent, and he met Jesus head on in this wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And He truly is the chief of the kingdom of darkness. He is the adversary, which is what Satan means. The chief enemy of God, of Christ, and of the church. He is that one who is uh, the deceiver, the slanderer, the accuser, indicating that this is how he always works. Very slyly, the father of lies. He is the one who has a certain authority in this age and world reflected in that temptation when he goes to the mountain and says, I give you this. He is the prince of this age. He's real. He's at work. And he was at work like at no other time when he was in that wilderness with Jesus during those 40 days and 40 nights. And his main tactic is always to tempt. To tempt being the activity of seeking to lead one to sin. That generally. To tempt by seeking to lead one to rebel against God. Instead of doing His will to do my own will. To dethrone God and to enthrone oneself in the attempt to do what I desire to do. Ultimately, that's what was going on in the garden. And that's what's always going on when you think about any sin. Dethrone Him. Enthrone myself. My will, not His will. And all of that is an attempt to do evil against God and His kingdom of righteousness. He tempted. He tempted Jesus 
not to do the will of God, but to do something different. We need to try to get a sense of this. And we do by on the one hand understanding that the devil is real and he's at work. And on the other hand, by understanding that it was possible and it was true that Jesus in His human nature which was weakened was able to be tempted. This is where the mystery comes in. This, beloved, is the best illustration that I've ever read to try to get some sense of this. Because not only must we say tonight in explaining this passage that He was in fact tempted, but we need to say that He was tempted beyond what anyone else has ever been tempted. The strength of that temptation was greater than the strength of any temptation that any man has ever experienced. So it's not only just saying He was, but the intensity of that spiritual battle and temptation was greater than anyone has ever experienced. This is the best illustration that I've read to help understand what that means and how that's the case. Think of it in terms of a pipe. A pipe that you exert pressure to to bend it. And let's say that the moment in which the two ends of the pipe meet is the moment in which there is a fall into sin from the temptation. Two different pipes. This first pipe represents you and me as weak, sinful men, women, and children. This pipe is longer and thinner. And longer and thinner, you exert a pressure. And that's a good analogy to think about a temptation. Temptation is pressure. You feel it. You sense it. You hear it. Your sinful nature wants it. It's the pressure to deny God's will and do my own will. That long, skinny pipe has pressure. And it takes some pressure to bend. And eventually, because it's long and thin, a certain amount of pressure will lead to the two ends meeting. And as we know so well, there's a falling. Now think about a different shape and size pipe. A short pipe. And a thick pipe. Pressure to bend. To bend that requires extremely more pressure. And because of the shape of that pipe, and the shortness of that pipe, you can bend it and bend it and bend it, but what will never happen is that those two ends will meet and touch. And that's what it was like for Jesus. He could experience a pressure in that temptation that far exceeds what you and I can experience. A bending, not a bending 
to sin, the touching is the sin, a bending, a reality of feeling what the devil was trying to get him to do, but in such a way that he would not and he could not ever fall into that sin. And it's so much more than what you and I could ever experience. Does that answer all of the questions about this? No, it doesn't. Admittedly, it doesn't. But does it give us maybe just a sense, a sense of how it was possible for Jesus to be tempted to experience it and feel it. So that He can say to you and me, I know it. I know what it's like. But yet, never fall into sin. Because He felt it. He felt it in a way that we can only try to grasp and understand. You see, the devil understands the Gospel. He understands that in this Jesus, the hope of the Kingdom of God is found. Which is why for 4,000 years in the Old Testament, His singular purpose was to prevent the coming and the birth of Jesus Christ. He couldn't do that. He didn't do that. Now He's here. Now he's here and he's continuing to do battle. And the devil knows that the victory for the kingdom of God and the decimation of the kingdom of darkness is Calvary. In the end, these three temptations are not about bread and stones and temples and jump, jumping and angels and, and nations and mountains and bowing down. It's all about Calvary. And the singular purpose of the devil and the temptation is to disqualify Jesus from being able to go to Calvary or to veer Jesus off the path that was going to Calvary. And so he says to Jesus, this is what you need to do. And to summarize it, we could say this, Jesus, there's a glory here for you. that doesn't require the hard, deep path of humiliation and suffering that's going to end as we just confessed tonight with the descent into hell. There's a glory here such that you can be Savior. But it was nothing Beloved, but this, a shortcut Savior of this world. Turn these stones into bread. Uh, picturing and figuring all of the things He could do in the interest of a kingdom of this earth. Jump off that temple and this is how you can get glory and praise. Bow down to Me and everything of this earth. It's yours. There's your glory. There's your kingdom. Anything but the cross. Because the cross meant the decimation of the kingdom of darkness and the establishment not of the kingdom of this earth, but the kingdom that has no end. The kingdom that encapsulates both heaven and earth as Jesus comes again one day to make all things new 
anything to deviate from that path. That's what's going on here. And he felt it. He experienced it. And in the face of that temptation, the Lord Jesus did what the first Adam could not do. He resisted. He defeated. So that He set Himself on that path that went directly to Calvary and He never deviated. And He went to that cross on your behalf and my behalf so that there is victory for the Kingdom of God and all of His people. And a Kingdom that will never have an end. He was tempted of the devil. And He conquered. Beloved, what does this mean then for you and me? Apart from the grand truth of the victory for the Kingdom of God, which we just explained, what does it mean for you and me as we go forward tonight, tomorrow, as we live our lives as we're called to before Him? Number one, it means forgiveness for the falls. Maybe you were thinking that throughout the sermon thus far. As I was writing this sermon, that's what eventually I was convicted with, which led to the writing of this point. You see the contrast, don't you? You see the image of that pipe in your mind. You see Jesus and you say, I've fallen. I've fallen so many times. And maybe tonight you come with a burdened conscience because there's a particular fall that, that, that's the slanderer, the accuser, the devil who doesn't stop is continuing to put in the forefront of your mind and saying, how could you be numbered among God's people? Look at what you did. Or maybe it's even a long time ago and it just keeps resurrecting in your mind. What is the Gospel tonight? The Gospel is this, forgiveness for the falls because He didn't fall. That's the word of the Gospel. He didn't fall in the face of that temptation so that He would go to that cross with the guilt of that very fall that may be on your mind along with all of your sin and take that sin and satisfy the justice of God so that you are righteous and forgiven. Here tonight, beloved, the Gospel of forgiveness because Jesus was tempted And He did not fall. The application as we press on in our lives is also this, power for the fight. The passage leads us to to face the question, in whose strength are you battling the temptations of the devil? Because if we walk away with anything tonight, what we walk away with is the strength is not in me. The strength is entirely in Jesus. And so face tonight the reality of the temptations that you experience. 
And don't think just about the big falls, the big sins. Think about the temptations in the everyday life. The temptation as a father after a long day of work to have the selfish mindset, I've put my time in today. Now these four hours after I get home and before I go to bed, they're about me. And all these people around me in my home, they're here for me. No, no, no. Yes, you may be tired, but you're still there as a husband and a father for them. Your wife needs you. Your children need you to be the humble servant that you're called to be on their behalf. A temptation of young people and even mindset. Mindset. A worldview. How you think as you live in a world that, that tempts you and the devil to get you to think this is what life is all about. It's about you. That's the world we live in. You. And you may profess Christianity, but in the end, functionally, the way in which you live is like the world lives. It's me. No, resist that temptation. Resist it in the power of the Gospel and in the power of Jesus Christ. And this part of the sermon could go on and on and on. And this is when we pray that the Spirit work in your heart to reflect upon the Word of God preached so that you walk away and you say, what is the temptation in action, in mindset, in word, that I need strength to fight. And then say this, the strength can only be found in Jesus. That's it. So that as Hebrews 4 says, we look to the One in whom there is mercy and strength. We're here in the house of God hearing the Gospel because we need this Jesus all our life long. And it doesn't matter if you're eight years old and fighting the temptation to disobey mom and dad or 85 years old and fighting the temptation to be discontent with the weakness of body and mind. It doesn't matter. We face it all of our life long. And we all need every single week all our life long, the exact same thing. And it's really not a thing. It's a person. It's the person of Jesus who works in our heart by His Spirit so that we're here hearing that Gospel which quickens our faith and strengthens us in His might to fight. And we're constantly seeking that strength in word and meditation and prayer and with each other as we are instruments in God's hand to lead us to the One that we need, the Lord Jesus Christ. And let us be that. Parents, be that as you teach your children how to face temptation. Not just obey and don't do that because you're supposed to obey and not do that, but you lead them to the Gospel and you lead them to the Lord Jesus. And then you see how the two points of application are related. That when I know in the face of the falls that there is this great forgiveness because He was tempted and He did not fall, it's the very thing that spurs me on to say, Lord, empower me by Your Spirit so that I can face and not fall. That my life would be a living testimony of God's grace in me and I would let my light shine before men. Forgiveness for the falls. Power for the fight.
The third point of the sermon is very brief. Ministered unto by the Spirit, by the angels. The way the passage ends, and the angels ministered unto him. He came in his weakened human nature. He needed to be ministered unto. What was the nature of that ministering? The text doesn't say. Forty days in the wilderness not eating likely means that the nature of the ministry was physical, providing him with the food that he needed, but also emotional and spiritual, strengthening him and encouraging him. He needed to be ministered unto because his race was not yet finished. The Lord Jesus is at the beginning of His ministry. He needed to be ministered unto because there's a Gospel according to Mark that continues. And He needs to go forth. He needs to go forth on behalf of His church and His people and accomplish the redemption that only He could accomplish. And so He's ministered unto. He's strengthened. He's strengthened to the end that He could serve. And that's what he goes on, and he does. It's not the same, of course, not by the angels, although the angels are real and at work, but ministered unto, to be strengthened. And beloved, we too have our race to run. And this week, we have to run our race of faith. And by God's grace, may it have been the case tonight, that by the Spirit and by the Word, we were ministered unto, we were strengthened in order to run our race of faith. And to run that race all the more, looking to the One who is the author and finisher of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we leave tonight. We begin another week of work tomorrow. May the Spirit use this Word so that we are encouraged to go forth as those who are followers and disciples of this Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Father in Heaven, we thank Thee for the truth of who Jesus is and what He has done. Tempted but resisted in order that He would accomplish the full redemptive work for His church. By Thy grace, Thou hast numbered us among Thy people. We do not deserve that. And we are thankful for that. And we pray that we might know Thy forgiving grace and that we might experience Thy quickening power to resist and to live as we are called to in this week in thankfulness and in holiness and obedience out of love for Thee because Thou hast first loved us in Christ. Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's sing now as we bring our worship to a conclusion.